As mentioned at the top of the program, in the second half today, we're going to try and speak with some people who have a thing or two to say about a firsthand experience with COVID-19. Joining us at this juncture is Tom Zimmerman, reporting in from Southern California. I met Tom time ago, and he gave me a firsthand report of what this was all about and agreed to come on the show. And happily, we can say at this point, welcome to Radio Parallax, Tom Zimmerman. Glad to be here. So, Tom. You are a man of seven decades, more or less, about the president's age, a little younger, I guess. Yes, that's correct. When did this happen? Was this May? I'm a little vague on the details. I think it was the end of of June. Okay. So end of June, you're going about your normal business, and and then you're you're feeling a little bit under the weather. Is that right? Well, yeah. The way it happened was I I just felt uh, fatigued for a couple of days. I mean, abnormally fatigued, but I didn't make a lot. Uh, for some reason, I'm just kind of tired. And one day, I went to El Pollo Loco and had a burrito. Oh, it tasted uh, like cardboard. It had no taste to it whatsoever. Uh-huh. I thought that was odd. So I ate half of it, brought it home, and ate the rest later. And, and, and it still had no taste to it. But I, I wasn't making any connection. I just thought, well... I just got a bad burrito. <laughs> <laughs> so just you know, you, I've had probably a thousand burritos at El Pollo Loco mm-hmm. over the years, and this particular one was the worst. Is not very tasty. <laughs> uh huh. So uh, again, I'm not thinking about COVID, and then a couple days later, it just I, I felt like I was hit by a truck. I had no energy. It was uh, a major task just to get up off the couch and walk out to the kitchen. It just, uh, everything uh, it w- was extremely tiring. I had I just had nothing. And my brain shut down. I found it difficult to think about much of anything. Well, by this point in time, you're starting to amass the, uh, the, the, the things on the checklist of people, what people worry about with COVID, particularly the, uh, the, the loss of a sense of smell and taste. So at that point, were you thinking that, you know, you've got it? I knew I had it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I absolutely had no doubt about it. <laughs> now, do you have any sense of where you might have picked it up? Well, probably there's a, a popular sports bar here in uh, the city of Orange. Nobody wears masks there. Everybody just uh, pretty much ignores the whole mask thing. And more than likely... Uh, all right. So at this point, you know you probably got it, and you're feeling pretty bad. And uh, I'm gathering that you soon were in such bad shape that you transporting yourself to the hospital was not really an option. Yeah, I got my friend Colum to take me over to the emergency room at Kaiser Permanente. And I don't think I could have done it on my own. All right. Well, at this point, why don't we the audience and have him say a word or two about this process? Because I'm sure at this point, in the condition you're in, he's probably a better witness to, to what you look like than, 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 than you remember, I, I would imagine. I, I'm, I'm sure that is the case. I'm going to hand the phone over to Colin. All right. Colin O'Connor, welcome to the show. A, a good Samaritan. You go to help your friend out. Uh, can you give us a description of what kind of shape he looked like uh, to you as you transported him? He, he looked dead. De- Death warmed up. I mean, he couldn't. He couldn't even stumble. I was in the minivan waiting for him to walk from his apartment to the uh, to the minivan. Uh, he walked that short distance. He looked dreadful. And then um, the big mistake I made was not 
thinking about how uncoordinated he was going to be because I'd borrowed a minivan that had two child seats in it, and I wanted to uh, maneuver Tom to the very back row where I would sit in the driver's seat. And getting Tom into the minivan and slot into the very back row between the kid seats, oh, my God, it took forever because he, he was stumbling and falling all over the place. So at this point, you must have both been thinking, uh, this is bad, this is COVID. Uh, were you taking some extra precautions for yourself at this point? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, before I picked him up, I knew for sure he had COVID. Just, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was because I was told he had COVID by uh, whoever contacted me, because I, I just went to my son's house, picked up a minivan, and drove to uh, Tom's apartment, just knowing uh, that he had it. I wasn't thinking anything else so uh my precautions were i had uh, uh my daughter-in-law is a, a doctor and she had special goggles so um and I, I so i wore i had goggles with me um and i had um a face mask on and tom was sitting at the back of the minivan and i <laughs> i i tried to drive with the stupid goggles on but <laughs> They were they were misting up and uh, oh boy and uh, it was pretty, anybody looking in would have wondered what the heck was going on. But um, I had to take the goggles off. I just couldn't uh, couldn't see with them on. So you get Tom to Kaiser, I guess it is, and 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 then what happens? Well, we got there. What I was really happy with was it was the direction signs were fine for dropping people off. They had outside admittance. It was uh, super super efficient, except for one problem in that. You know, I couldn't get the guy who was doing the admissions thing to take any interest in taking my phone number or anything. And I, and I was, got myself a little bit confused um, about, you know, I thought, well, maybe they're going to ask Tom, you know, who do we contact? And he was so sick. It never entered my head that later on they'd be, you know, letting, letting him out of the hospital. So when I dropped him off, he was in a wheelchair. I, I'm telling him he looked great, it's all going to be fine, but I thought I'd never see him alive again. I really didn't think I'd see this guy alive again, even though I was lying through my back teeth. Wow. Telling him uh, he looked dreadful. But the problem was I had his car keys and his house key. I had taken them away from him. I would think, Column, in your defense and in Tom's defense, you did not anticipate that you would go to Kaiser and that he would soon be bounced back out on the street, which I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but that is, in fact, what happened. That is what happened. So I left in the back of my mind still thinking, I hope they got the phone number for me and that they call me ahead of time so I can go pick up Tom, but that's not at all what happened. It's about, I'm guessing here, at about... Uh, I'm going to say about one, I, I, I got a call from Tom, or else I, you know, I might have missed the actual call saying I'm being discharged. And by the time I called Tom back, uh, I wasn't getting any answer. And about maybe one hour later, about 2 a.m., um, I kept calling and I get through to Tom. In the meantime, and I should maybe hand the phone back to him at that time, I find out that he had somehow got himself out of the hospital, got himself a taxi, and checked into a hotel close to his apartment. I don't know if the hospital assisted in any way there. All right. Well, let, yeah, let, let's pick the narrative back up with Tom. Sure. 
Yeah, things uh, went uh, okay at the at the hospital. You know, it's slow. Uh-huh. I think anytime you're in a hospital, you see a lot of people, and you don't really understand what role they are. Are they doctors? Are they nurses? What, whatever. You, you just don't know. Uh, but they were fine. They were slow. And uh, one doctor came in and gave me uh, a chest X-ray, which uh, while I was uh, seated, okay. I didn't even know that I didn't know they could do that. Okay. So, so he gave me a chest X, X, X-ray, and, and uh, there was no blockage of any kind. So I presume your, your, your lungs looked pretty good to them. Yes. So even though your good friend who just transported you in there lied to you and said you look fine, he thinks he's never going to see you again. You must have been in bad shape. Didn't look terrible, and I guess Kaiser figures you're better off at home. Yeah, it, that's exactly what happened. But here's the curious thing. They uh, they decided that they had to give me some pills. They didn't give them to me. They, they sold them to me. Pills for a cough, which I don't remember complaining about. Pills for nausea, which I don't remember complaining about. <laughs> and, and and pills, uh, they gave me an antibiotic. And why would you give a person with COVID an antibiotic? I have no idea. So I found this annoying because the bill was like 50 bucks for these three medications, which I didn't want. Right. And I I feel I didn't need. But, you know, you're you're in a situation you can't say, no, I don't want these pills. Right. (laughs) Well, you figure they're the medical professionals. They must know what they're doing. They must have some idea what they're doing. Exactly. Which, speaking as a medical profession, I, I do have to inject. That's not always a good assumption. But let's not go there. They decide you're good enough to to not be treated in the hospital, but they they basically put you in a cab, and because they can't reach Column, you wind up in a hotel. That's the that's the short version of it. Yeah, they didn't actually put me in a cab. They just basically said you can go now. Did you have to call your own cab? Yes, I did call my own cab. Yeah. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, this is the beginning of you treating yourself at home. I, it sounds like it was a pretty rough go for quite a while. About a month of uh, just feeling very gloomy, being sick, and then you know you, you wake up every day and you think, do I feel better than I did yesterday? And you go, no, I feel pretty much as the same as I did yesterday. That was about it. So that goes on for a month, and then one day you wake up and you think, I feel... And then, and then that rehabilitation last for about and after a week you're feeling pretty good did you experience a lot of trouble breathing along the way uh no trouble breathing okay. oh but here's the striking thing uh i completely lost interest in food does it taste bad you can't taste anything can't taste anything has your sense of smell returned yes mm-hmm. okay but how long did that take the duration the whole month yeah and then suddenly you start smelling stuff all right so but I imagine about at this point you were able to hook up with your old friend Colm again. Yes. Uh, yeah, we spoke a few times, yeah. Let's hand the phone back. I'd like to hear his perspective at this point in, the, in, in, the, in, this, in this narrative. Sure thing. So Colm, you, you, you thought you might not see him again, but it had a happier ending than that. He did make it uh, home, recovered enough to where he was essentially back to normal after a month. When you saw him at that point, what, what were your impressions? 
actually, next time I saw him was the next morning because I had to get him from the hotel to back to his house again. Okay. And, and so I, I I picked him up. I had the identical problem with getting him in and out of the minivan. It was like a, a revisit of the whole night before. And um, so I, I get him and uh, I walk him to the uh, stairs at the bottom of he He lives one flight up. His apartment's one flight up. Kind of selfish of me, but I, as an experiment, I wanted to see how he was going to walk up the stairs. I mean, I remember thinking, I'm going to watch him walk up and see what it looks like. And he could he could have tumbled down. He he struggled up, holding the handrail and uh, stuff like that. And then I didn't see him for the full month. Um, you know, people were leaving food for him. They called me, but you know, because they follow up. Um, Kaiser, I don't believe followed up, but the VA followed up for him, and uh, they told me that he had not been calling in like he was supposed to be calling in. And that was because he forgot his code number, and so I called. Tom back and told Tom, "Hey, you've you've got to respond to the VA and and this number to yeah. let them know that, that you haven't got pneumonia or something like that." I also called his sister in Ohio and asked her to be calling him, uh, you know, pretty frequently just to make sure that he you know hadn't got pneumonia and drifted off or something like that. I understand that she uh, became a bit of a pain and called him as religiously as I'd asked her to. Well, I'm glad the VA was doing some follow-up. It doesn't sound like Kaiser did such a good job. The admittance thing all worked out pretty slick from my point of view, except that they hadn't got a handle on actually taking my phone number and at any point. Uh, so they, that was pretty bad. But I'm sure they've learned to fix that since then, I hope. I hope so, too. Well, I, I, we need to finish this with a discussion of Tom's uh, comparison to his own experience to that of the President of the United States. But before you hand the phone back, let me ask you about that. You, 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 must, have a, you must have formulated an opinion by now, having seen what happens when you're the president and you get remdesivir and you get uh, polyclonal antibody and you get choppered to the hospital and, and, and how that compares to the, you know, Tom's experience as John Q. Public. Well, yeah, Tom was, I mean, he had me. How many people get me driving into the hospital? <laughs> well, it, there's that. So that's probably better than getting helicoptered from the Blight House. No, but Tom was left to his own defenses. And uh, it's got to be a sad, you know, uh, situation cooped up in there and, and bothered people, and he didn't want to be bothered. Um, yeah. But, but uh, if anything had really gone down, there was nobody to notice quickly that his oxygen level had dropped or um, he had gotten pneumonia or anything. Nobody would have, you know, it probably would be too late for a normal person. So the big thing about him, which had been extraordinary, hasn't come completely back, and he is unable to play any of his musical instruments anymore. He used to uh, play a couple. He used to play clarinet and saxophone, so he can't do either anymore. He just really? hasn't got the, the air bar. Here's Tom, if you want to say bye-bye to him. All right. Well, Colin, thank you. Thank you for, your, for taking him to the hospital, too. Tom? I don't have the lung power. to. Uh, I, I sound like a little kid, like wow. maybe a six-year-old kid trying to uh, play saxophone for the first time. Can't, can't, can't do it. Well, it's interesting that your lungs were not that bad on the first night, and you were never terribly short of breath, and yet clearly this has affected your lungs to this point, this many months later. Yeah, it has, and uh, in some way that I can't describe or really understand it, it's definitely affected me. 
Well, I do, in closing, want to ask you about uh, the fact that the president had a different experience than you did, and he tweeted on, on October 5th in the morning that uh, he's going to be leaving Walter Reed today. He's feeling really good. He tells the public, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We've developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge, and I feel better than I did 20 years ago. I'm very keen to hear your reaction to that. Well, my reaction is is that he's a very wise man, <laughs> and that uh, I made the mistake of letting it dominate my life. And I know better now. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, all those people that expired, they'll never be able to... Uh, share his wisdom. That's, that's, my, that's my reaction. You're in Orange County, and of course, as you were mentioning, uh, you were exposed in, in some bars, some sports bars that was, had a very cavalier attitude about all this. Are you seeing it recently uh, uh, that people have, are taking this more seriously? No, not at all. It's exactly the way it was three or four months ago. People seem to have the attitude, uh, aside from um, some kind of political uh, uh, philosophy, but, but people that they just have this attitude that it's not going to happen. I'd like to, to invite you specifically to check out our website, trumppandemic.net, in particular some of the timelines we have on there. And, and by gosh, if you've got any further feedback you want to give uh, to us, you're welcome to, to come back anytime. Well, thank you, Doug. Uh, I enjoyed this, and uh, I'd do it again, sure. You must have gotten it, uh, just as closing, some amusement out of the fact that after, after hyping hydroxychloroquine for months, the president was treated, and, and no one seemed to mention uh, that as part of the therapy. That's right. No, no one brought that up. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and, and he didn't get any bleach either, I noticed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tried the bleach, and it didn't work for me. It just made me sick. That's all it did. <laughs> okay. You're welcome, Doug. All Take right. Care. By the way, I misspoke in the last segment when I talked about um, the president speaking on Air Force One to Michael Shear and other reporters. That apparently was a trip to Pennsylvania, Maine on the same day, the 26th. Assuming the president, in fact, contracted the virus at that cluster event, he would not yet have been infectious to pass along to reporter Michael Shear. But the missing data here is who in the Rose Garden. And yes, as mentioned in the last segment, the so-called contact tracing that's being done is, you know, well, if you're going to bypass the CDC to do your contact tracing, you know, about the best organization we have in this country to, to do such a thing, if you're going to bypass them, well, you know, something's up. You, you, you don't really want to find answers. And uh, answers we need more than ever, which uh, is a great segue into this Atlantic article by Zainep Tofeki. No, I don't know his background. It was titled, This Overlooked Variable is the Key to the Pandemic, and it's a pretty good piece of writing and worth a few minutes of ours. By now, many people have heard about r not the basic reproduction number of a pathogen, a measure of its contagiousness on the average. But unless you've been reading scientific journals, you're less likely to have encountered K, the measure of its dispersion. The article notes the definition of K is a mouthful, but it's simply a way of asking whether a virus spreads in a steady manner or in big bursts, whereby one person infects many all at once. After nine months of collecting epidemiologic data, we know that this is an overdispersed pathogen, COVID-19, meaning that it tends to spread in clusters. 
but this knowledge has not yet fully entered our way of thinking about the pandemic or our preventative practices. The article reiterates that the now famous r naught is an average measure of a pathogen's contagiousness or the number of susceptible people expected to become infected after being exposed. If one ill person infects three others, on average, the r naught is three. This parameter has been widely touted as a key factor in understanding how the pandemic operates. Notes the piece, unfortunately, averages aren't always useful for understanding the distribution of a phenomenon, especially if it has a widely varying behavior. If Jeff Bezos walks into a bar with 100 regular people in it, the average wealth in that bar suddenly exceeds $1 billion. If I walk into that bar, not much will change. Clearly, the average is not that useful a number to understand the distribution of wealth in that bar or how to change it. Sometimes the mean is not the message. Meanwhile, if the bar has a person infected with COVID-19 and it's poorly ventilated and loud, causing people to speak loudly at close range, almost everyone in the room could potentially be infected, a pattern that's been observed many times since the pandemic began and it is simply not captured by R. That's where the dispersion comes in. There are COVID incidences in which a single person likely infected 80% or more of the people in the room in just a few hours. At other times, COVID-19 can be surprisingly much less contagious. A growing number of studies estimates that a majority, a majority of infected people may not infect a single other person. A recent paper found that in Hong Kong, which has had extensive testing and contact tracing, about 19% of cases were responsible for 80% of transmission while 69% of cases did not infect another person. This finding is not rare. Multiple studies from the beginning have suggested that as few as 10 to 20% of infected people may be responsible for as much as 80 to 90% of transmission, and that many people barely transmit it. This highly skewed, imbalanced distribution means that an early run of bad luck with a few super-spreading events or clusters can produce dramatically different outcomes even for otherwise similar countries or cities. Studying the various genomes of the virus, researchers in New Zealand looked at more than half of the confirmed cases in that country, and they found a staggering 277 separate introductions in the early months but also that only 19% of introductions led to more than one additional case. Meanwhile, in Daegu, South Korea, just one woman, dubbed Patient 31, generated more than 5,000 known cases in a megachurch cluster. We can't confirm this, but we're pretty sure at Radio Parallax that Patient 31 was not in the Rose Garden last week. Now, why this is the case... Why COVID-19 is what's being described as an overdispersed pathogen is, is, is a little unclear. It might be that some people simply are super emitters of the virus. Peace notes that in study after study, they see that super spreading clusters of COVID-19 almost overwhelmingly occur in poorly ventilated indoor environments where many people congregate over time. Weddings, churches, choirs, gyms, funerals, restaurants, and such, especially when there is loud talking or singing without masks. So this phenomenon of over-dispersion, which we're describing, should also inform our contact tracing efforts. In fact, notes the article, we may need to turn them upside down. Right now, many states and nations engage in what is called forward or prospective contact tracing. Once an infected person is identified, we try to find out with whom they interacted afterward. 
so that we can warn, test, isolate, and quarantine these potential exposures. Well, unless you're the White House, of course, and then you, you send them an email. But, notes the article, that's not the only way to trace contacts. And because of overdispersion, it's not necessarily where the most bang for the buck lies. Instead, in many cases, we should try to work backwards to see who first infected the subject. Peace quotes Adam Kucharski, an epidemiologist and author of the book The Rules of Contagion, as noting that if we can use retrospective contact tracing to find the person who infected our patient and then trace the forward contacts of the infected person, we're generally going to find a lot more cases compared with forward tracing contacts of the infected person, which will merely identify potential exposures, many of which will not happen anyway because most transmission chains die out on their own. Anyway, it's, it's this lengthy piece, highly worthwhile. I do want to note that the Japanese noticed this overdispersion characteristic of COVID-19 as early as February and created a strategy focusing mostly on cluster busting, which tries to prevent one cluster from igniting another. So in Japan, they did carry out an approach of undertaking aggressive backward tracing to uncover clusters. And what do you know? It worked pretty well, even though Japan, by law, was not able to, uh, to put in place the isolation many countries did, and early on did not have a lot of testing kits. But Japan got its cases down and has since kept up its vigilance. The piece notes that Japan's commitment to cluster busting allowed it to achieve impressive mitigation with judiciously chosen restrictions, adding that countries that have ignored superspreading have risked getting the worst of both worlds burdensome restrictions that failed to achieve substantial mitigation. The UK's recent decision to limit outdoor gatherings to six people while allowing pubs and bars to remain open is just one of many such examples. So, tip for the White House, particularly Navy Commander Dr. Sean Conley, read the article. Of course, if the White House medical unit, which he's directing, is is bypassing the CDC, and doing proper contact tracing that, you know, going forward, let alone the bet, the more improved version, as we're describing, that looks back in time. Uh, if they're just going to send emails to people, well, I, I think it demonstrates that they're not going to do the right thing. And, and I guess there's a lesson in this for all of us, which is that the people on the top are not going to do the right thing. Of course, if what that means is that the disease is going to incapacitate people in the White House and Republican part of the Senate, well, that could be a plus. This reinforces the fact that this is not going to get better anytime soon. We have to do much more testing than we're doing. We need to do contact tracing, particularly as we just described, looking back in time and isolating as needed. It's pretty apparent at this point in the game that uh, Trump's base are not phased by any of this which, oddly enough, leads me to a Turkish proverb. At least it's a meme that was sent around that's being described as a Turkish proverb, which we need to quote from. It goes as follows. The forest was shrinking, but the trees kept voting for the axe. For the axe was clever and convinced the trees that because his handle was made of wood, he was one of them. And finally... A meme that I picked up, I don't know, somewhere. I guess it's on social media. I guess I should credit the person that posted it, but I don't remember who it was. Anyway, it goes like this. The car in front of me had a bumper sticker on it. It read, Pray for Trump, Psalm 109.8. 
When I got home, I opened my Bible to the scripture and read it and started laughing. Here's Psalm 109.8. Let his days be few and brief and let others step forward to replace him. To which the writer added, at last, I can voice a biblical prayer for our president. Well, anyway, no matter what thoughts and prayers may be sent in the direction of uh, Donald J. Trump, he is not out of the woods yet. It took Herman Cain something like 10 days to go from being exposed to being sick enough to go in the hospital. I got several emails over the weekend from people asking if I thought this whole thing was fake. That Trump was going to falsely claim that he'd gotten COVID, have a quote-unquote miraculous recovery, after which he would say, see, I told you it's no big deal. Let's move forward. And although that's not completely impossible, I'd have to say the, uh, the vast bulk of the evidence does not support that hypothesis. If he was determined to fake it, he would have said, I took hydroxychloroquine and now I feel great. And I feel pretty confident he would have skipped the helicopter ride to Walter Reed. But who knows? We live in strange times. Apologies if this show seemed a little bit disjointed, but uh, with all the news of the past week, I've, I feel like I'm trying to ski in front of an avalanche. We hope you will check out trumppandemic.net and feel free to give us some feedback at info at Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Tom Zimmerman and Colm O'Connor for sharing their experiences with us. Special thanks for assisting the production of that segment to Susan Parker, the person who also told us about her cross-country trip to Florida some months back. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. We've only got a few more shows before the election, so please tune in next week and after that. Oh yeah, I'm Douglas Everett. Get yourself together, dog.